tonight. And Babbitt's ballin' wind bind the bone. Went like this. Big up the youth them way out of Kingston. <laughs> you wake up this morning and you see the thing turn up. Internet gone mad. Respect, you don't know. The soon father the yard. Booyaka, booyaka. Full of voices. <laughs> Ancestry, howling at you. You bring stories. It's the kind of thing that makes the average citizen puke and look at this system and say, yeah, you know, what's going on? The red countries are the countries we sell arms to. The green countries are the countries where we wash our money. We are more than just one coin. We create the world around this coin. Come. Invention. Come. Come. Evil has gone. Hello, welcome to Grub Stakers, the podcast about billionaires. My name is Sean P. McCarthy, and I'm joined here by Yogi Poliwol, Andy Palmer, Steve Jeffries. And you heard there on the intro a little bit from the heir to Tom Hanks's fortune, mm-hmm. uh, because we're talking today about um, those children who inherit the great fortunes created by uh, their parents, their grandparents, their great great grandparents. Uh, and specifically, I wanted to start with just kind of a question for you guys, which is... What, what do you think of Chet Hanks? <laughs> <laughs> Did you know he existed before this? We only thought, knew about the other one. Colin. Colin. I mean, I don't know if Ch- Chet Hanks speaking Patois is that impressive or depressive, but I know it's something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sure is a thing. Well... And I guess even related to that, what I would ask you guys is, what do you think of when you hear the phrase, world's youngest billionaire? I mean, upstanding individuals have worked hard and uh, spent more time working than other people, and really putting uh, their uh, 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 strength to the the test of becoming the best that they can be. Right. I imagine uh, Richie Rich typing (laughs) into a cartoon computer, surf the internet, and then it's a little video of a guy surfing has had the least time to be a policy failure <laughs> just uh coming out of your mother's womb at a five-star hotel in dubai like had to grind for this view <laughs> <laughs> but what i think of is that balzac quote is made famous by the godfather is behind each great fortune there is a crime and you could even extend that to the greater the fortune the greater the crime sure Hence Chet Hanks and his patois, uh, <laughs> inheriting his father's Pizzagate money empire. <laughs> it's like everybody's roasting him, but clearly he's having a mental break, having discovered what Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks are up to oh, and yeah. how they made their fortunes. <laughs> he's disassociating and everybody's just roasting him on Twitter. We live in a sick society. I mean, mental health is a serious issue. I mean, to quote, well, though, in Tom Hanks' defense, to quote a movie poster I saw in Midtown, um, that Mr. Rogers' movie is what America needs right now. Oh. It was also, I didn't take a picture of it because it was in poor taste, but it was also perfectly framed over a limbless homeless person uh, begging for money. That is in poor taste. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, behind each great fortune, there is a great crime. 
there was a gr- there was a crime. Uh, and, you know, really, when you think about the youngest billionaires in the world, as of 2018, uh, Bloomberg uh, Business wrote an article that uh, describes who the youngest billionaires in the world are. Um, and I'm just, uh, well, first of all, I'm just going to tell you the title of this article. Uh, the title is, quote, The world's youngest billionaires are shadowed by a World War II weapons fortune. Aww. Unquote. This is by David DeJong. And so we're doing good so far. Yeah. Uh, a World War II weapons fortune, where they, you know, U.S. industrialists who uh, their parents dropped, you know, firebombs on Dresden. Well, where are we going from here? Well, it's two twins. Their names are Victoria Catherine Flick and Carl Friedrich Flick. They're born in 1999. Uh, just for reference, Kylie Jenner born 1997. So they are younger billionaires than Kylie Jenner. Uh, not quite as great of a crime associated with the fortune, but uh, the, the the Flick twins are born in 1999, and then this will give it away. They're born in Germany. I'm just going to say the Nazis would have never acquitted OJ. <laughs> <laughs> so the Flick family traces their fortune, and again, these are kids born in 1999 worth as of 2018 according to bloomberg to uh, 1.8 billion u.s dollars wow. they trace that money to uh their grandfather friedrich flick who was an industrialist for nazi germany during world war ii uh and in fact uh, according to this same bloomberg article uh they also have two half sisters uh, alexandra butts and elizabeth von uh, bruner uh both of whom also have billion. Her name is Alexandra Butts? Yeah, B-U-T-Z. Oh, okay. All right. At least it's respectable. (laughs) It's like brats. (laughs) Ah, gotcha. Uh, So they they also each have $1.8 billion. So this is a total of a 7.2 billion U.S. dollar fortune entirely passed down from being the largest private, uh, privately controlled enterprise for the production of iron, steel, and armaments in the entire Third Reich. Well, hard work, just like I mentioned earlier. That's them <laughs> putting the pedal to the metal, literally. It's funny because like, it's, it's an echo of what you see in the tech sector, which is that like the people who make the most money, it's not necessarily that they were the best. It's that they had no morals whatsoever <laughs> and just did whatever it took to profit off of uh, whatever circumstances thrown in front of them. Yes, according to the same Bloomberg article, uh, they also utilized slave labor oh. uh, throughout their business empire. Again, the largest privately controlled enterprise for the production of iron, steel, and armaments, according to The Guardian, uh, in the Third Reich. Uh, according to Bloomberg, as many as 40,000 laborers may have died working for Flick companies, according to a study of his Nazi-era businesses published in 2008. I mean, if that's so bad, then how come Werner von Braun, who did the same thing, is an American hero? <laughs> that's fair. That's a good point, Andy. You put us on the moon. I think uh, only 50,000 or so slaves went through, well, I say only, yeah. but like, <laughs> I was, where I was going with that was of 50,000, right. 40,000 died. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So it was like considered a death sentence. High turnover. On, yeah, right. A death sentence on par with going to a camp. Yeah. Basically. Uh, yeah. Mary Fulbrook. Jesus. Uh, wrote a book called Reckonings, Legacies of Nazi Persecution and the Quest for Justice. And just quoting from that book, uh, based on uh, trans, uh, transcripts and documents from the Nuremberg trial of Flick corporate executives, uh, it came to light that, quote, in many enterprises in the uh, in his many enterprises in the iron, coal and steel industries during the Third Reich, Flick had employed somewhere in the region of 48,000 slave laborers, some 80 percent of whom did not survive. Booyaka, booyaka. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, th- that that holds up against the, the yeah, Holocaust that, that, camps. That, it, 
and that also matches up with your math. But oh wait, yeah, that that is probably pretty close to death camp numbers, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so wait, are they dying because they bring work to death, or are they being killed? I mean, death camp numbers are probably like ninety five percent, but still, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a mostly horrifying number. Work to death, starved. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and we'll we'll kind of go through all of that, but you know, uh, first of all, credit I mean, efficient employee handling. If you ask yeah. me, you know, you don't need to give health benefits when they're working themselves to death. I, I was, think that's. I was gonna say we should credit his incredibly efficient strategy <laughs> to save money on pension costs. That's right. That's well, right. One of the most efficient HR departments, yeah, exactly. corporate right. Germany has ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But like, and it's a model that is used today at Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> From the Maria Fulbrook book, uh, she tells the story of a guy who's imprisoned for telling a political joke in Nazi Germany, and then he's put in, you know, slave labor, and by the end of the war, he survives. When the camp is liberated, he weighs 86 pounds. Wow. So, you know, I mean, and of course, everybody's familiar with these stories, but... Uh, well, how I, tall was this person? <laughs> That's my weight loss plan. As America gets more fascist, <laughs> it's just tell enough, tell enough political jokes that I go in a camp. What was the joke? <laughs> he was, was he like doing stand up, and yeah. they just immediately arrested him? <laughs> yeah, was it any good? <laughs> he was doing a radio show, and he asked if he if anybody thought Himmler eats butt. <laughs> oh no! He was playing really annoying sound effects oh, that shit. people were complaining about. Oh fuck! <laughs> For context, Sean read a one star review of Grub Stakers before we started recording, and now he's in a mood. There is another one star review on our iTunes. They don't want to hear our dangerous truths. By the way, Sean, which are half drops. Sean mentioned that there was a one star review, and then I immediately look, and there's a three star review where they're like, oh, Sean's pretty good, but Yogi's unbearable. And I had to read that and go, Well, I like the bear pun you did, but other than that, fuck this review. <laughs> Those are like, whenever I see the reviews that trash everybody else and then say, I'm quote unquote okay, <laughs> I just see the image of the success kid in my head. <laughs> Doing uh, the God's work, if you ask me. Yeah. If you don't hate us, you ain't us. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so. I guess what I would say here is uh, it's, you know, people are familiar with the story of the Holocaust and, of course, you know, mass death and all of that. But I think what people, for a lot of people, doesn't quite register in their head is that if you made money off slave labor in the Holocaust, that doesn't fucking go away. Right. It just keeps on going generation to generation. And so to the point where... Unless you were like some loser who uh, tried to save more and... uh, (laughs) Then, uh, then you're, I mean, you know, then you're just, uh, I, I'm just saying Schindler's kids, they didn't, they didn't, uh, succeed cause, uh, their dad was a loser. Rich dad, poor dad. That'd be kind of funny if like one of those alpha leaders Instagrams was like roasting, uh, Oscar Schindler for not <laughs> wanting it bad enough. Do these kids have a social media presence? Are they on Instagram and Twitter they're, and shit? They're all very private. Uh, just according to Bloomberg. Weak. The twins' lives have remained intensely private. No photographs of them have gone public. Carl Friedrich won a regional junior saber fencing title in 2017. Easiest kind of fencing. (laughs) Little (laughs) is known about his sister. Um, And, you know, this is also just partly the culture of German billionaires. Less ostentation. fun kind. I was actually going to say this is the the culture of German billionaires is generally less ostentatious than Americans, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. also just like all of the episodes we've done on German billionaires tell you why that is, (laughs) why they might want to keep their heads down about where that fucking startup capital came from. Yeah, we are a, uh, we are a very private society because of the legacy of the Stasi. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, and, and so, you know, so um, Friedrich Flick, uh, he died in uh, 1972, and we'll go through mainly his life today, because that's what we know the most about, um, but it should be noted that up to his death, he never apologized, never paid any compensation to any of his, you know, 48,000 slave workers, the uh, 80% of whom were dead by the <laughs> end of the war, um, and because he didn't pay any compensation, didn't pay any pensions, didn't take care of health care costs or, you know, disability benefits, uh, he was able kind to... the perfect uh, business model. <laughs> he was able to pass $7.2 billion U.S. dollars down to his descendants as of 2018, and he could have, you know, his grandson win a uh, junior saber fencing title. Uh, so... So it was all worth it, yes. is what you're trying to say. I mean, you know, 40,000 deaths. Uh, if you've got to get a junior saber fencing title, <laughs> you need to do something to get that. You just go for the head. It's really hard to defend. <laughs> um, but I did I, it for like one month, and saber was really fun because you can just thwack. <laughs> <laughs> I like that we have a resident fencing expert on the show. Expert's a stretch. But I guess if we can just start the biography of Frederick Flick, we could go back all the way to the year 1883 in Ernsdorf, uh, Siegerland, northwest Germany. It's near the border of the uh, the Netherlands. After Michael Brooks said, who the fuck cares, when I was correcting Sean, now I'm just going to let him go. <laughs> uh, thanks, Michael. But so he's born in 1883, and uh, he's the son of a farmer. And uh, my main source for this is the book Nazi Steel by Marcus Jones. How's steel spelled? Uh, S-T-E-E-L. Mm, damn. Uh... His origins, uh, just quoting from it, his origins betray little of the potential for later successes revealed. Uh, He was the son of a farmer with connections to the iron ore mining industry in the area. At 21, he uh, performed military services, uh, obligatory at the time, and thereafter attended a a trade school in Cologne, where he graduated in 1907. Flick's first job after his schooling was that of a procurist, a corporate official with power of attorney with the uh, Bremerhaut ore processing plant in Widenau. Uh, he remained there for five years, departing in 1913 to take up a position on the governing board of Menden and Schwert, a steel enterprise in the home region of, in his home region of Siegerland. His prospects brightened in April 1st, 1915, with his appointment to a seat on the governing board of uh, Schorlatten Hot AG, an old steel firm founded in 1864. Um, and then uh, World War One was mainly what uh, allowed him to build his fortune because he was appointed to the board of this steel firm mm-hmm. in 1915. And then uh, by 1918, Flick had nearly doubled the value of his original holdings from uh, 5 to 9.5 million Reichsmarks through an aggressive series of acquisitions. Wow. So basically, he uh, gets, you know, uh, he graduates trade school. He gets uh, appointed to a job at an iron ore mining company. He, by 1915, works his way onto the board, and then he pursues an aggressive strategy of acquisitions, and it's just because World War One is going on, and the price of, you know, steel and iron ore is through the roof because mm-hmm. there's a fucking war on, that he's able to build his first fortune just on the backs of the mass slaughter in the European theater. Right, right. And this is all prior to 1930? Yes. This is all, like, so his first fortune was entirely based on his success in World War One. Yeah. So, like, from about 1917 to 1928, he's just consolidating his board position and using money to buy up various steel, coal, and uh, ore processing assets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I mean, it's a smart bet to be long in the middle of a war, because, you know, just the more he buys, the higher the prices go up. And then, of course, you know, shortages all over Germany and, and this kind of stuff. 
So, uh, you know, he, he certainly makes a, a good fortune there initially. Um, and he's able to, you know, keep that fortune until after the war. Uh, of course, in 1918, World War One ends, and then he's trying to expand his steel fortune throughout the early 1920s, uh, his steel and iron ore fortune. Um, and initially, he wanted to buy into the Ruhr, uh, the Ruhr Valley region on the border with France, kind of the main industrial zone in, uh, in Germany at the time. Uh, but, you know, the established people there didn't want to let him in. So instead, he starts buying up in uh, Upper Silesia. And according to the book Nazi Steel, he put together the components of a regionally based steel concern, acquiring in the short span of three years an iron foundry, mining operation, and steel processing plant. In 1920, he took over uh, the Bismarck Chute. In 1921, the Katowitzer <laughs> for Bergbau. <laughs> so much German here. I'm just not even going to try. You can look it up, the, the firms that he bought, if you're curious. 4.5 no, stars trying. on iTunes. Uh, <laughs> finally, the uh, Oberschlachen Einzelindustrie Akten Schlauchat and its assorted subcomponents, becoming through these ex uh, acquisitions an extraordinarily large force in Silesia. Uh, Silesia. Uh, so it sounds like he's he's purchase he's essentially purchasing himself a vertically integrated corporation. Yeah. For heavy industrials and minerals. Mm -hmm. Right, because the uh, the coal and the steel industry are heavily intertwined. So you know he gets you know the iron ore and the coal mines. Uh, and then he also gets, you know, the finishing steel plants, the steel foundries, and yeah, kind of integrates. Pits, right. Yeah. He integrates the entire thing. Well, that's progressive for his time. <laughs> but he's building an empire. I mean, he's building all the pieces he'll need to build the fortune that his grandkids are going to inherit. Mm. Yeah. So he wants his, his great-grandson to take up fencing. <laughs> so. But so by 1923, uh, the, you know, the established uh, steel barons actually do start to take a note of his empire, and they form a cartel. Uh, it's, it's called uh, Vernecht Stellwerk, uh, VST for mm -hmm. short. And VST, uh, German for roughly United Steelworks, uh, was, throughout the 1920s, second only to U.S. steel hmm. globally for steel production. It was a huge cartel. And, uh, you know, they had domestic competitors, including, you know, Krupp Steel and, and these sorts of things. But they were, again, the second largest global steel producer. And they invite him in in 1923. He gets to take a stake in it. Um, and this, you know, gives him, uh, let's say, mainstream acceptance in the German business community. And, uh, you know, also allows him to participate in a uh, fucking cartel. Because, of course, this is kind of the way things worked. Uh, throughout the 1920s. Right. But so the VST was initially set up in uh, uh, 1926, actually. He, he gets to, uh, Friedrich Flick gets to buy his stake in in 1923. Uh, this trust is established in 1926, uh, according to Nazi Steel, quote, to regulate the production, distribution, and pricing of steel and steel products uh, in the German market. Um, uh, Flick got a sizable stake as the result of his holdings. And so, you know, in 1926, they set up this thing. But then in 1929, of course, the Black Friday crash happens. The American stock market crashes. And according to Nazi Steel, this dealt uh, the VST a heavy blow since it had chosen to finance a substantial portion of its rationalization program with American money in the boom years of the mid-1920s. And um, again, according to the book, the market worth of Frederick Flick's holdings... Uh, he buys in, you know, 1923, 1926. By 1932, it had declined to only 22% of their previous value. Hmm. And it was at risk of, like, totally unraveling. 
because the American stock market had fallen apart. What's are you gonna go into the yeah. manipulation? Well, so essentially, what happens is in 1932, you know, it's looking like he, uh, the VST, might even go bankrupt, or his stake might just get wiped out. It's again at only 22 percent of its value, but. I think this is the part in that German documentary where uh, his assistant starts uh, stacking Reichsmarks and putting them into envelopes <laughs> for politicians. Is that is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, I think so. Andy watched a German language documentary on Friedrich Flick. And most of my takeaways were visual. <laughs> um, but so basically what he's able to do is, uh, according to the book... He's able to negotiate with the Weimar Germany government, the government that preceded the Nazis. Mm -hmm. He's ordered to negotiate with them in order to buy his stake in VST for about 92% of its previous value. So on the stock, about three times what it was worth thereabouts. Um, and this actually causes a, a wide scandal within the um, uh, government of Germany at the time. And yes, he probably managed to do it by putting Reichsmarks into <laughs> envelopes and distributing them to uh, uh, background actors, getting their big breakthrough. He made, well, did he make a flurry of political contributions in these years, or is that later? He did. He made a lot of political contributions in, in 1932. I mean, when you said, like, youngest billionaire, mm -hmm. my initial thought was, like, well, you know, in Weimar Germany in the 20s, like, everyone was... <laughs> The youngest billionaire. Yeah. Yeah, briefly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sort of like in Zimbabwe. Yeah. Um, but so this actually causes a scandal when it's reported on by the German press. Uh, but the, uh, the uh, Weimar government declines to investigate. However, Friedrich Flick, this is his introduction to the German Nazi party because a Nazi periodical around 1932 after the scandal comes out says that, you know, he betrayed Germany by stealing all the people's money to recapitalize himself at three times the market price. Um, and uh, this periodical says that his, his assets should be nationalized and returned to the German people if the Nazis take over. So Friedrich Flick... Uh, meets with Hermann Goering around this time, around 1932, mm -hmm. and this is where he starts getting friendly with the Nazis because he he essentially even describes it at the Nuremberg trials as something like an insurance policy hmm. where he, he claims that he wasn't into the Nazi ideology. He just needed to give them money as an insurance policy. By the way, the, video, the archive footage of Goering is always hilarious. <laughs> he always looks like... Um, He's stuffed into a suit that's one size too small and <laughs> like a tight military suit. Mm -hmm. It's one size too small. And also uh, he just discovered morphine. <laughs> and so he's just grinning and like shaking hands with sure. everyone and flopping around. That's great. Hmm. But according to L.M. Stahlbomber, uh, Flick gave about 50,000 Reichsmarks, uh, equivalent at that time to about $25,000, to the Nazi party. Uh, however, most of his donations actually went to, you know, other sort of mainstream right-wing parties. He even gave money to the Social Democrats. He claims he spread, mm -hmm. sped, uh, spread money around mm -hmm. to kind of provide an insurance policy for whoever takes power after 1932. Yeah, I mean, he... Uh I read another book called, a couple sections of a book called Who's Who in Nazi Germany, mm. which is basically just a, a giant encyclopedia written for the CIA <laughs> later on. Uh, and they said he, like, he ended up donating the most to the re-elect uh, Paul von Hindenburg. Mm. 
like about 20 times more than he gave to the Nazi party. Hmm. It's also like this is how our current billionaires, like um, back when we did a, an election episode, uh, we looked into who they were supporting, and the answer is everyone. Yeah. Like, if there, if a Nazi party comes to prominence in America, like, they're just going to be another line item in the campaign donation list. And well, I think... You know, Facebook pack to better America. I think it was the case that, like, the Nazi party in the late 20s was doing most of their financing internally or through small donations. Oh, really? The Bernie Sanders model <laughs> right, for the right. Nazi party. Yeah, they were. <laughs> And, like, only later did they start getting mega donors from, like, concerned industrial capitalists. Huh. Right. I mean, it was it was an interesting story with the Nazi party where, essentially, there were a few, you know, industrialists or bankers or major players who were Nazis. But for the most part, they were just supporting Hindenburg and the bourgeois right parties. Um, but they were very much afraid of, you know, the Marxists. And then once Hitler was appointed chancellor then they very quickly lined up behind him because they recognized which way the winds were blowing. And it's, I mean, and we've made this kind of a theme on the show is that, you know, as, as soon as it becomes a choice between fascism and socialism, you know where all the rich people are going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just, it's the same story every time. Yeah, and it is something interesting where, I mean, I guess when it comes to political donations, and and I I think most people are aware of this, but it gets obscured a lot. When it comes to political donations, to believe that they are not malicious, that if somebody, you know, gives $5,000 to some presidential candidate or something, that some businessman gives them $5,000, to believe they are not malicious or bribery or whatever, you would have to believe that these business people that we're always told are the smartest people, the best businessmen, the best strategists on earth, you would have to believe they're just setting money on fire. Right, essentially. If they're not expecting something for that money. Yeah, just like as an aside, like I think, who someone most people don't don't donate any money to any candidate but if you do donate someone some money it it's like one of the most meaning dense statistical items you could find for someone's political ideology yeah like i i and it, it's funny the hoops that liberals will jump through like i saw something on twitter recently where someone said you know, I don't mind Michael Bloomberg funding small races because, you know, we need to fight voter suppression. And it, it's like, it, if you think that Mayor Stop and Frisk is, <laughs> is donating to congressional candidates uh, to, for, any, for a reason such as racial equality, like you... Uh, I, I, well, he believes we stop whites too much. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that's a man that I can trust with all opinions and all ideologies. Yeah. And you know what? Bloomberg 2020. <laughs> <laughs> but so, you know, uh, of course, in 1933, the Nazis come to power and uh, Friedrich Flick has ingratiated himself with Hermann Goering. He's given them, the party, a bit of money. So he's kind of insulated himself from the possibility of any... Uh, any lookings into this shady deal whereby the government bought his stake in the uh, VST for three times its worth. So, you know, the Weimar government doesn't investigate and he's paying off the Nazis, so they don't investigate. And this was, you know, one of the first times he was seen with Hermann Goering, but certainly not the last. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so an interesting thing happens. Uh, Hitler's unofficial economics advisor uh, was a guy named Wilhelm Kepler, um, and he sets up what's called the, uh, the Kepler Circle. Uh, in 1932, he sets it up, which is like kind of a 
a loosely affiliated conference of German industrialists and bankers who meet with, you know, Hitler's unofficial econ advisor and they chat with him and, you know, this kind of stuff. So in 1932, um, uh, Friedrich Flick is invited to this. He instead uh, sends his subordinate, a guy named Otto Steinbrink, uh, to join this. So he's kind of has his representative there. Otto Steinbrink joins the Nazi party in 33, later goes on to be, uh, later moves on to the staff of Heinrich Himmler. Because what happens in 1935 is the uh, Kepler circle is actually taken over by Heinrich Himmler. Hmm. And it, be- it c- becomes called the, quote, circle of friends of Himmler. And this is basically just a conduit. I mean, it is also like a business meeting consortium, but it's also a conduit where businessmen, industrialists, bankers pay bribes directly to Heinrich Himmler because very quickly after the Nazi takeover, the SS are basically the state within a state. They are running every, not everything, but they are the main power force within Nazi Germany. Um, So uh, according to various accounts, uh, its members, quote unquote, donate it about 1 million Reichsmarks annually to a special account S, uh, which was paid directly to Heinrich Himmler. Um, Friedrich Flick, said that he paid about, I think, 100,000 Reichsmarks, something in the range of that, uh, directly to Heinrich Himmler. Um, Yeah, according to the book Nazi Steel, Flick's contribution amounted to about 100,000 Reichsmarks annually. So every year he's paying Heinrich Himmler and the SS 100,000 Reichsmarks. And this will be very important because he gets favored by the Nazi government for taking over various formerly Jewish-owned businesses. But so he, you know, he's paying these bribes directly to Heinrich Himmler, directly to the SS. And what's called, what happens throughout Nazi Germany is called the quote-unquote Aryanization process. Uh, Deutsche Bank, you might be familiar with, mm-hmm. became a major global bank because they got to buy up Jewish banking assets at gunpoint. And a lot of various German companies that today, you know, are global leaders. Of course, Bayer Acid came from, or Bayer came from IG Farben. Uh, you know, Krupp Steel, uh, all these other companies benefited from Nazi German policies that destroyed their Jewish competitors. Um, and, and so, and also it should just be noted, another thing that the Nazis did that was very important for German industrialists was there was the total suppression, the violent suppression of labor unions, factory councils, any workers' organizations. They were all at gunpoint. You know, the labors, uh, the leaders were either killed or put in concentration camps, uh, or just said, hey, if you don't fucking toe the line, we will kill you or put you in a concentration camp. So all all workers in but Germany... They got like two-week vacation. <laughs> all workers in Germany were put into an official Nazi party union. There was one union, and it was a Nazi party union, and uh, it was... Two-week ho- vacations. It was hopelessly corrupt and almost always sided with management because the, the Nazi obsession was, of course, especially during the war, avoiding any labor agitation that might disrupt armaments manufacturing, so they always almost always sided with management in the point of, you know, who gives a fuck if people are working 80-hour weeks? We have to produce this for the good of Germany or the war effort or whatever the fuck. Right. Um, it's got to be interesting to be the uh, someone who's, like, believed in the union and then... <laughs> but doesn't really care about politics otherwise. Mm-hmm. And then you're like three years into the war and you're like, you know, I think that, I think that this union's kind of in bed with management. <laughs> and it's flipped and you only care about politics and you don't care about the union anymore. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you're like, I mean, something, something smells bad here. I, I feel like this union doesn't have, and you're, you're in the middle of Nazi Germany and none of that registers to you. Like all your Jewish neighbors disappeared and you're like, I, I think something's hinky. <laughs> um, but yes, the, uh, 
Oh, and I did just want to mention regarding Himmler's circle of friends, mm-hmm. you know, again, so this is a German industrialist kind of meet semi-regularly and also pay bribes directly to Himmler, but it's a way of getting their concerns directly uh, uh, contacted to the Nazi regime. Uh, according to the Guardian, as part of his time in Himmler's uh, circle of friends, uh, Friedrich F- Flick personally in 1937 took a tour with Heinrich Himmler of uh, the Dachau concentration camp. Oh. Um, and, uh, he was apparently, according to other sources, Friedrich Flick was made aware of some Einsatzgruppen's document. These were the, uh, mass killing squads in the Eastern Front. Uh, apparently, uh, an Einsatzgruppen general gave a presentation to the, uh, Himmler's Circle of Friends group, uh, at some point in the early 1940s, uh, which, uh, Friedrich Flick was, uh, in attendance for. He had, like, charts and graphs. <laughs> But so, you know, in uh, initially Nazi Germany is trying to keep global opinion on their side mm-hmm. uh, where they're doing these Aryanizations like they're, you know, of course, there's all sorts of unofficial state terror against the Jewish population, which they try to b- bring under control, like at least for the Olympics and this kind of stuff. Right. But it's uh, it's more of a international concern where they don't just want to start seizing, you know, Jewish property, uh, especially not if it also has foreign ownership, because you'll have like Jewish companies that have like a 20% stake by some American or whatever, because they're worried that if they just start, you know, grabbing these things, that German businesses abroad will be seized in retaliation, you know? Mm -hmm. So they're kind of doing it cautiously, where essentially initial Nazi policy is let's have German businesses take over these things uh, so it doesn't really look like de facto nationalization. And let's just, you know, we're first of all encourage, you know, unofficial state terror against Jewish people. Right. Uh, and second of all, all Jewish businesses are denied any business loans from the Third Reich. They're given, you know, absolute lowest priorities for allocation of raw materials. And then even in particular, once 1936-37 rolls around, the German economy enters the first of its four-year plans, which is where state planning becomes a lot more important in the economy. So if you can't get access to, you know, raw materials, like, you're fucked. So it is just essentially creating the conditions where German businesses have no choice but to sell, or sorry, Jewish businesses have no choice but to sell to Germans, quote-unquote Aryans, under duress. Yeah, squeezing them out. Yeah. And so, like... Which is essentially what the process of redlining did as well. Of course. Mm -hmm. Like, it's uh, the... uh, uh, It's not like... You know, this is unique to Nazi Germany. In Germany, this this it's the same logic. Yeah, same. Yeah, like Bank of America in New York City in the mid to late two thousands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely was up to things on the similar line. Well, it's interesting how you know we've come across corruption throughout the um, you know last hundred and fifty years, and how it doesn't ever really go away. It's just the loopholes and how it's technically legal continue to change. Mm-hmm. Right, and so kind of what happens in the uh, the coal and steel sector is uh, with the first four-year plan, in uh, 1937, uh, Germany actually does set up a state uh, coal and steel conglomerate. This is called the White Reichswerk Hermann Goering, RHG, mm-hmm. uh, in 1937 because uh, they say uh, uh, Paul Pfleiger is a... a a German official in Goering's economic organization, uh, they wanted to use, you know, this kind of poor quality uh, native iron ore in the Salzgitter region. 
this is from the uh, book Nazi Steel. Uh, they wanted to use this kind of poor quality uh, steel, but, you know, the German industrialists didn't want to flood the market. They thought the price was already, like, low. They were trying to keep the price high, whereas, you know, of course, Hitler is building the rearmament. They want as much steel, as much iron as possible. So the Nazi state does intervene here and set up its own, you know, state company. And um, at this point, you know, some of the steel industrialists make an initial bid of opposing the regime, but Hermann Goering tells them, you know, this will be considered sabotage, like you will be killed or put in a concentration camp. And Friedrich Flick actually has a, a very pragmatic approach here where he realizes which way the wind is blowing, and he says, you know, according to the book, that he wanted to accommodate the government, but, you know, keep it in private hands, but meet the directives of, you know, the state or whatever. Right. Uh, but this is, you know, just kind of important because he doesn't make any pretense of opposing the regime, which will make him that much more favored when it comes to allocation of stolen war booty uh, by the regime hmm. uh, in 1937. And so kind of what happens is in uh, 1938... In March 1938, Germany takes over Austria, uh, mass violence against Austrian Jews break out. And this is 37-38 is where you really start seeing a big clip of pace for these Aryanizations, these takes over, takeovers of uh, Jewish businesses. So in 1937-38, the pace of this really wraps up, and uh, the Hoffenwerk Lübeck was uh, the largest in the city of Lübeck. This is like an iron steel works uh, with Jewish but also, you know, foreign uh, ownership. Um, and so um, Friedrich Flick starts getting in on the game. He uh, buys up kind of its smaller firms that have sizable holdings in the parent company. He, by like late 37, has uh, about 51% of the stock of these smaller firms. Um, and then uh, according to the book Nazi Steel, at a uh, December 1st, 30, 1937 meeting, uh, pressure from the Nazi regime divided the unified front thrown up by three of the holding company's foreign shareholders. Uh, so, you know, there were foreign shareholders. The Nazi regime, like, told them, hey, you got to fucking get out of this thing. Right. Uh, and what happens is that uh, Friedrich Flick enters negotiations with the firm's remaining Jewish owners uh, who had founded the Lubeck Works and retained control of 60% of its shares. Um, and, you know, they, the negotiations aren't really going anywhere. Frick drives a hard bargain. But uh, what I find extremely ominous uh, the owners offered to settle with uh, Friedrich Flick, provided that he secure a reassurance decree guaranteeing their exemption from further persecution. Hmm. So what Friedrich Flick does from them is he gets a letter from the Nazi government that says to these Jewish owners, we will not persecute you anymore if you sell your steelworks to Friedrich Flick which uh, I'm sure was worth all of the paper that it was printed on uh, because oppression immediately stopped. Um, but so, you know, and that's just like one example. There were uh, hundreds of these um, expropriations and yeah. these, these essentially gunpoint sales where it's like it's not even a negotiation at this point where you have all this state terror. And um, when uh, in March 1938... Uh, when Germany takes over Austria, violence against Jews, just like from the citizenry and, you know, quote unquote, unofficial state elements really ramps up. Then in November 38, you have the Night of the Broken Glass, which was a pogrom, state sponsored pogrom within Germany. So you just have like all of this violence ramping up and, you know, a regime that is very clearly telling Jewish people that we are going to get rid of you. So this is not a fair negotiation. This is like, 
you know, if you're playing Civilization and you set all of the sliders in mm -hmm, a trade mm -hmm. and then you go control the other side of the right, trade right. and you trade everything to yourself. That's the kind of negotiation <laughs> Friedrich Flick was conducting here with these businesses. Sean, why are you hard? Yeah. <laughs> Um, but then, you know, just one other example is called the uh, Pechek Mining Concern, uh, P-E-T-S-C-H-E-K. Um, and it's interesting where this is a, uh, a Jewish family that owns mines in what was then Czechoslovakia, but also within Germany. But, you know, like they're based in Czechoslovakia. They own some German mines. Uh, this is primarily, um, I believe, coal mining. Mm -hmm. um, but interestingly enough, in uh, 1938... Uh, January 1938, Hermann Goering personally granted Friedrich Flick exclusive authority to conduct negotiations with his group to buy them out. So this is like, this significantly reduces the price because he's the only one who can negotiate with them. He doesn't have to compete with any other German businesses. And that just kind of shows that by 38, he was very close to Hermann Goering and the regime in general. And uh, the Pacek family, you know, they hold out initially but then with, uh, we mentioned the German occupation of Austria in March 1938, and then uh, the threats against Czechoslovakia. They see which way the wind is blowing. They sell to him in 38, and they actually, the entire family has to flee to New York City with the Munich Agreement, which oh. gives uh, part of Czechoslovakia to Nazi Germany. Uh, because, you know, at the conclusion of every fair business transaction, it is traditional for all of the opposite <laughs> party to flee the country out of fear for their lives. That's what happens here. Yeah. Um, well, maybe they were worried that their uh, family singing troupe was too subversive. But so it's like these uh, are just two representative Aryanization transactions where he's able to use his relationship with the regime, the bribes he's paying to Himmler, mm -hmm. his relationship with Goering, presumably he's paying bribes to Goering as well, um, and, you know, other people within the regime. He's able to use that relationship to uh, get first access to these kind of uh, concerns. Yeah, in my research for this episode, I found an interesting paper that kind of bears out what most researchers in the post-war Germany kind of surmised was that, like, the within industries that did work heavily with the Nazis, the ones whose corporate board members had personal connections to Nazi party leadership had unusually high stock market returns. <laughs> yeah, so this is a paper that's titled Betting on Hitler. The Value of Political Connections in Nazi Germany, and is written by Thomas Ferguson and Hans Joachim Waff uh, at the University of Zurich. And basically, within an industry, like... Uh, Should be noted, before we were recording, Stephen was getting really into political betting. <laughs> <laughs> he told me... No, I was in the mindset, I guess, <laughs> of uh, political corruption, or just political betting, I guess. But, uh... So the like the benefits extended beyond the boardroom basically mm -hmm. to wealthy investors in Germany. So they're essentially making bets of their own, uh, buying up shares of companies that they knew that they knew were politically linked mm. in order to bid up the asset values and gain these like returns that they they estimated they did like an analysis of the personal relationships of companies and then looked at their stock returns. And it said that they Wait, experience they, unusually they, high returns outperforming unconnected companies. They bid up... Wait, so the people invested in companies that were attached to the Nazis and then... Or went, people invested in the companies that were attached to the Nazis to increase their value? By doing so, yeah. So like okay, they, so it was a little bit of both. They knew that 
because they were connected to Nazis, they would have high returns as yeah, the Nazis yeah. increased in power, and they wanted to also inflate those companies. Yeah, so like these, uh, the returns these companies were getting were unexplainable by random like oscillations in the stock market alone. Okay. So, either these investors, they just knew who was connected to whom, mm-hmm. and over time, it allowed them to, it made them believe that the price would rise on these stocks in particular. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but that's not real capitalism, Steve. <laughs> real capitalism <laughs> has never been tried. What I'm saying is they did that. They put in the hard work <laughs> to both be corrupt and also realize who was doing the corruption right. and bet on them. Right. And, you know, we went through two particular cases. Like, um, I guess the book Nazi Steel goes through in, you know, very painstaking detail some of his bureaucratic maneuverings, Friedrich Flick's, because what actually happens with the um, the the mining company, uh, the Czech mining concern that we mentioned, uh, is that initially the government nationalizes it because by late 38, early 39, they just totally threw away any pretenses of legality and started seizing property because they knew World War II was about to break out. Mm. Um, so they nationalize it, and then he actually exchanges some of his other properties with the government in order to get... Uh, a whole bunch of the stake of the recently nationalized property. So it is like he does kind of start engaging in horse trading and this sorts of stuff. But the point here is that, you know, he's able to make, you know, gunpoint negotiations with Jewish businesses, which means that, according to the book Nazi Steel, by 1941, his companies accounted for 6.2% of the total um, uh, German iron and steel production. And then he's later given um, these French territories... Uh, Lorraine is a French border region, which was um, initially German, then taken back by the French. Well, I mean, it was always kind of on the border of Germany and France. It was like annexed by France in something like 1766. Then it was, uh, um, you know, a a split between German and French speakers. Then it was taken uh, by Germany in the 1870 Franco-Prussian War. Then it was taken back by France in the 1918 war. So it's this contested region. But, um, you know, there's a, a German industrialist set up a steelworks there, which uh, was taken over by the French at the end of World War I. And then with the Nazi invasion of France, the Germans take it back over. And Friedrich Flick is first in line to be uh, able to buy this out. And, you know, again, the book Nazi Steel goes through some of the bureaucratic maneuverings he does to do that, including, like, he gets somebody in the Nazi economics ministry to write up a paper assessing this plant that says that he has, like, the best chance of connecting a Coke supply to it, like a Coke (laughs) iron supply. Yeah, he has, like, the, he has the best, most reliable supply chains Mm -hmm. leading to the factory. Right, which is just completely not true. But he managed to convince or pay off or whatever somebody within the Reich's economics ministry who writes this fucking report that says, like, yeah, this guy would be perfect to take it over. Right. So it's, you know, there's just a bunch of... And that's what you see throughout the Third Reich is this kind of weird overlapping bureaucracy where uh, that's how people make their fortunes is by manipulating that. So uh, he gets kind of first claim to this uh, massive uh, steel production region in the um, in France. And... You know, the book Nazi Steel says he would have been a lot richer had the war gone a different way. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, because 
essentially another thing that the uh, uh, German uh, Nazi German government does is they have um, these conquered territories, particularly once they open up the Eastern Front against Russia. They tell German industrialists, hey, you manage this as a trust on behalf of the German government. You maybe pay us rent. You meet our production quotas or whatever. And you, you know, technically we own this, but you're the trustee. And then as soon as the peace comes... This will pass to you. Like, so wait, he would have been richer if half of his country hadn't been <laughs> taken over by a communist government. <laughs> he wouldn't. He would have been richer if his country hadn't been leveled in a mass <laughs> bombing campaign. Which is even more impressive because, like, when he died, he was still the richest person in Germany in 1972. He was the richest person in Germany, one of the richest people in Germany. Oh wow! Despite like half his fortune just being fucking Sovietized. <laughs> But again, that's what happens when you don't pay your pensions. <laughs> yeah, he, what was it? He, he went to jail after the Nuremberg trials for seven years. And then when he Th- came out... Three years, just, right? Or three years. Yeah, he was sentenced to seven. He served okay. three. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, when, and if it, it's pretty astounding. I, I guess it really more speaks to how America was dictating uh, things in their part of Germany how he was allowed to, you know, be sentenced for war crimes and then just walk out of jail and just straight to the back to the bank where he's got <laughs> just all this money already stashed. Like the 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 fact that if someone's sentenced to war crimes, they can still keep their assets is is <laughs> just morally indefensible. Yeah, that would be like a central contradiction of the remainder of his life and his children's. Yeah, yeah. Like, morally speaking. Yeah, exactly. Like, the descendants of those slaves. Exactly, We'll we'll get into it. Right, so that's where we're going, is he takes over this French plant in the Lorraine region. This is called the Rombach Steel Mill. It's, you know, massive mill. It's got all these connected, you know, mines and stuff. Uh, uh, You know, and this would, uh, had he been able to get it up to full operation, we said he was more than 6% of the total steel and iron production in the... uh, Nazi regime. They estimated that had he been able to get it up to full production, he would have come uh, come up to about nine percent. So you know this would have been a huge increase on his uh, contribution to the overall steel and iron market. But uh, what happens is you know there's all sorts of fucked up supply chain issues within the Nazi German government. Uh, they actually talk about how the uh, German merchant fleet had to seriously rely on the Swedish merchant fleet in order to meet um, logistical needs. And the railroads were always fucked up. They wouldn't invest in, like, more railroad maintenance. So it was something where the plant never got to full capacity because, you know, uh, German rail networks were all snared and they couldn't deliver the um, precursor, you know, coke and uh, other such things, iron ore. Um, and then later, the Allies started bombing the shit out of it. So he never really actually, he probably didn't even make that much money on this thing. Oh. But, uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, but it was something where Hermann Goering, uh, I think, said explicitly that after the peace, all of these assets would be reprivatized hmm. and returned. So he was just kind of making up... that up with, where are my perks at? <laughs> uh, so Friedrich Flick was just making a bet on this thing, on the idea that uh, once the war ends, I'll be able to make a fortune. Um, but so I guess just to kind of go to the slave labor thing is uh, <laughs> there's various uh, sources that say he initially... Apo- I call it the War of British Aggression. <laughs> I think it was more of a lost cause situation. 
to move on to the uh, the slave element of this empire, apparently, according to like sources I found, he initially did not oppose slavery on any moral grounds. Oh, it really? was just he was running a steel empire, so there's actually a certain amount of skill to operate a steel foundry <laughs> where, uh, you know, a Russian prisoner who weighs 70 pounds and has never worked in a steel mill in their life might not be as efficient as a worker you actually trained. Sure. But, you know, the actual labor situation in the Reich was because once they introduced all this state planning, uh, they would, uh, it, it became illegal in many cases for people to leave their jobs if they were considered essential to the war effort, which a lot of things were. And basically everything that wasn't war production was over the course of the war shut down and the workers were converted to war production. So, you know, the, the Reich's labor ministry would essentially give you your workers and they could at will take away their workers and employers could even be fired or could even be imprisoned for firing workers or uh, hiring unauthorized workers without permission huh. so it was essentially as the war went on the labor shortages got so acute that he was like okay sure yeah we'll we'll take these slave laborers and um and you know just like the thing is when we talk about you know forty-eight thousand slaves probably forty thousand of whom died uh the businesses were very much aware of what was going on the um the write-up by lm Stahl stallbomber uh uh, they wrote this up for the uh, Anti-Defamation League for a, uh, a paper they uh, published. Um, they talk about one of uh, Friedrich Flick's mines. I believe this is a, a coal mine or an iron mine uh, called Harpen, which a company that still exists in Germany today, mm -hmm. and its German-language Wikipedia article seems to, seems to just skip over <laughs> the years 1939 to 1945. We were all on vacation. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, just quoting from uh, his write-up, uh, the conditions for Harpen's forced laborers were, were appalling and difficult to approve even when government officials and employers acknowledged the negative impact this had on productivity. Um, so basically, Flick's Harpen coal mining... Uh, the management uh, tried to resolve the problem of food supply. Uh, the Harpin's business records disclosed that the most persistent problem pertaining to forced labor was the lack of nutritious food. The Harpin board of directors recognized that malnutrition lowered worker productivity, but beyond official complaints of government officials and the food supplier, Harpin found no creative solution to this fundamental problem. Temporarily increasing <laughs> rations for workers who arrived in physically weak condition and scheduling the heaviest meal at the beginning of the worker's shift brought no significant improvements in productivity and certainly had not, no long-term beneficial impact on the worker's health. Um, no, there wasn't a technocratic solution to starvation. <laughs> this is the level they're at is where they're just like, maybe if we fiddle with caloric intake, yeah. the prisoners will feel better about being forced <laughs> to be let's, here. Let's develop an app that reminds prisoners to eat their most calorie and uh, dense meal right before being forced to build things. Uh, basically, a Harpen board member suggested that Harpen plant a garden of potatoes and cabbage. Harpen officials discussed the proposal, but there was no indication that they followed through on it. <laughs> uh, and then Harpen eventually took the position that it was nearly impossible to improve the quality of food for forced laborers when the company's German employees were being subject to increasingly strict food rationing. Um, uh, humanitarian concerns could not or would not be contemplated by Harpen's board of directors. Um, and this is, of course... 
throughout the entire Flick Group company, this is kind of a similar thing. Hmm. But it, it was just something to show where they said, oh, hey, we had no control over the food situation in Germany. But, you know, they didn't give it. They were aware of everything that was yeah. going on. They were aware of the 80% death rate among their <laughs> workers. They only cared insofar as, like, oh, productivity is lower when people are fucking starving to death going into a mine. <laughs> I don't see why we got to feed these people that are working for us. I mean, shouldn't they figure out their own food situation? I mean, they got boogers. They got other people's boogers. Why can't they feed themselves on boogers? <laughs> yeah, and another thing is like uh, Friedrich Flick denied um, producing munitions for the uh, German army, which is just flatly untrue. It's like, here's you producing them. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that that photo is uh, not me. Uh, that guy's got a hat. I got no hat on my head. <laughs> but um, just from the book Nazi Steel, uh, although the evidence does not reveal how much of his Lorraine plant, how much of its output consisted of finished armaments, it does point to armament contracts that required rather sizable investments in equipment and entailed a notable degree of oversight from Reich and military authorities. Uh, the plant's level of output probably would not have escaped his notice, making his post-war claim of ignorance seem improbable. And it also talks about, you know, in 1943, they get some big contract to build anti-tank munitions and oversee these French plants building anti-tank munitions in 1943. Uh, he was also, some of his companies were involved in uh, Luftwaffe production supply chains. So, you know, he claims that he just built, uh, just gave, you know, um, fucking steel or iron ra uh, rails, iron just bars. Just much better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> cement. He says they just did this thing, but they almost certainly by every piece of evidence also did armaments for uh, the German military while it was engaged in the Holocaust. And, you know, um, he's tried by the uh, Allied authorities at the Nuremberg trial in 1947. He's sentenced to seven years in prison. He's released on good behavior in 1950. Uh, minor chuckle I got was reading his Encyclopedia Britannica article which says that uh, the Allied authorities seized 70% of 75% of his business empire, and then finding another source that said, "Yeah, 75% of his business empire disappeared because it was in the Soviet zone of occupation." <laughs> uh, so it you what else disappeared there? His son. Yes. He it's not. It's not like he won, or he lost a judgment, right? In like West German court, and they took it away or mm -hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it was like they his Lorraine factory was given back to the French uh, or given back to French concerns. But other than that, they left his business empire entirely intact in West Germany. And uh, just according to Encyclopedia Britannica, the Allied administration in West uh, Germany, they followed a course of decartelization where they just wanted to avoid cartels. So they forced him to either sell its steel or its coal operations. So Flick chose to sell his coal resources. So he got to maintain basically all of his steel uh, foundries and operations. So, of course, you know, the Marshall Plan dumps all this money into Western Germany. There's the, uh, the West uh, European recovery. So he's the one who has all this steel that they need to fucking rebuild everything that was bombed to shit in the war. So this is just like how he became a billionaire was not getting a bomb dropped on his head between right. 1941 oh and did, 45. Oh, my God. Did he benefit from Marshall Plan funds? I mean, 100%. Even if not directly, it was just like, you know, Mar the Marshall Plan goes, and so all these governments need to spend money rebuilding. So where the fuck are you going to get the steel from if the government says, yeah, you can keep all these steel properties you own? What's so the disgusting. Marshall Plan? Uh, it was a 
it was a U.S. plan to help Europe rebuild, uh, basically. Gotcha. <laughs> Man. God forbid they break up that company and distribute it to the workers <laughs> and, you know, undermine the hardworking capitalists that were the backbone of German society. Uh, just according to L.M. Stahlbrammer, apparently he also transferred 90% of his holdings to two of his surviving children. So he didn't technically... Uh, count as a conglomerate because just according to this conglomerate laws technically did not apply to someone who only owned 10% of a company. Hmm. So by just giving his kids 90% yeah. of his flick uh, group company, flick KG, uh, flick KG remained his in dumb son who got killed in Ukraine. <laughs> didn't get anything. <laughs> Uh, Flick KG remained in existence, and the Flick family re uh, retained control of its steelworks in Bavaria, Eisenwerk, uh, Gestalfut, uh, Maximilschut, its blast furnace operations, uh, Hockenwerk, Lübeck. Oh, yeah. That one was, of course, we mentioned the Aryanization one. He got to keep uh, his Aryanization steelwork that he stole from Jewish people at gunpoint, uh, and its Ruhr, uh, Ruhr Valley coal operations. Uh, Flick AG played a major role in the post-war reconstru reconstruction of West Germany while enjoying renewed prosperity. Sometimes uh, when people talk about the history of uh, post-war Germany, they talk about the American plan of denazification. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's technically spelled with a wink. <laughs> <laughs> right. And he was able to use this money that, you know, from selling his coal businesses and uh, from his, his, the money he gets from the reconstruction to buy into Damier Benz AG, the company that makes Mercedes Benz. So he's, b dies in 1972, Ger West Germany's richest man, because he also expands out from steel to buying into, you know, luxury cars and all these other products that are soon very much in demand from uh, the German market. Oh, I did just want to mention the um, the Rombach steel plant, the French plant that he took over. It probably didn't produce like an actual profit in his lifetime, just because of you know bombings and supply concerns, and it never really run it ran at full capacity. But he was able to extract enough money from it to, according to the book Nazi Steel, uh, in 1944 September, the Flick concern had little of value to show for its years of trusteeship, aside from some 8.345 million French francs in large bills from its Paris marketing accounts, which it trucked to uh, Saalbach Rosenberg for safekeeping. So basically, they got a ton of uh, Swiss francs, like eight and a half, almost eight and a half million, which they trucked out into uh, safe storage in Germany and were, of course, able to get access to back after the war. But so he had three sons, one of whom was killed in the war. The other one, Otto, was heavily involved in his slave empire. But it was actually his son, Friedrich Karl Flick, who buys out three other family members in 1975. Hmm. Uh, Friedrich Flick, uh, the grandfather, dies in 1972. Uh, but Friedrich Karl Flick in 1975 becomes the sole heir to the fortune. And uh, he uh, sells the remaining assets in the 1980s to Deutsche Bank, for about 5.36 billion Deutschmarks, which was 2.17 billion in uh, U.S. dollars in 1985, wow. and this is in the middle of a political scandal in West <laughs> Germany. Yeah, so the affair, like the political affair that he was involved in, began in 1975, where uh, authorities became aware that he was like he was trading shares of the Flick Company worth about in 1975. He sold shares worth about 1.9 billion Deutschmarks of Daimler AG and Deutsche Bank. Mm -hmm. um, in 1981, though, uh, 
there's a tax fraud investigator um, who, after studying it for a while, he found that the Flick Company had money transfers to all of the political parties that were represented in the Bundestag, like the top party brass. Um, Nothing like fo- following your father's path to success. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Playing all sides of the field. Um, he actually kept like a, just just like uh, some some other Nazi parties, he kept very detailed records. Hmm. Uh, were kept by the Flick Company accountant, uh, listing all of these transfers. So it wasn't actually that hard once the tax fraud investigator got onto the trail to find the rest of it. But he actually ended up transferring about 565 Deutschmarks to the chairman of the then the chairman of the CSU. Uh, one of the major parties at the time. It's uh, still a major part of that's Angela Merkel's party. Oh, this is before they see SU and the CDU. Right, before they split, I guess. Well, they came together, right? Oh, they came together? Oh. Is it now it's the CSU, CDU. Oh, it's one but, single party. Yeah. But it, well, I mean, she's... I don't know anything about German politics after 1945. <laughs> <laughs> Stop paying attention. Well, anyway, there. so... Well, now you only keep track of the AFD. <laughs> 250,000 Deutschmarks were transferred to the CSU chairman, Franz Josef Strauss, and 565,000 Deutschmarks were transferred to the CDU chairman, Helmut Kohl, as well as payments to the FDP and the SPD uh, chief politicians. Hmm. That uh, that last one is the uh, Social Democrats. And you oh, wonder yeah. why they're uh, such wet blankets when it comes to capital. <laughs> uh, there's well, a hint right there. Even in the Weimar Germany period, I believe we said Friedrich Flick was paying off the Social Democrats, right. who were for a time the largest party in Weimar Germany. Um, and he was paying most of his money to the bourgeois right parties. But again, it's all just an insurance where you just kind of give the Social Democrats some money to hopefully keep them at bay, mm-hmm. you know, keep them like focused on other people, not on you. Yeah, so, and it, it's weird that... Uh, uh, party that calls themselves social democrats but is taking payments from industrialists was not able to prevent a uh, populist demagogue from <laughs> taking power. So like this scandal was made public, first made public by a newspaper, Der Spiegel mm-hmm. and they these transfers, like the some of the top officers within the Flick family companies were the ones who are actually doing these transfers they went to trial and they were only found guilty of tax evasion and assistance to tax evasion, respectively, these two officers. Um, Flick himself actually got off. Um, I don't think he went to trial, actually. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, no, but I mean, that's a... It's interesting where, like, in the mid-'80s, this is, like, the a huge scandal in Germany because, of course, the the Flick Group was... Uh, I don't know if at that time they were the biggest, but certainly one of the biggest uh, corporate conglomerates in Germany was paying bribes to the entire political spectrum. Yeah, at the time, this was, like, trending towards Watergate level of scandal. Oh, wow. And, like, it's used... Like, Flick Affair is just used as, like, a phrase to denote serious scandal now huh. in Germany. Right. Yeah. And so it is like, it is this scandal that has him sell off his business assets, which, uh, irony of ironies. So in 1985, we mentioned he sells to Deutsche Bank. So essentially he stole off, sold off his stolen assets, uh, for another person who bought them with stolen money. (laughs) So 
they get their original fortune uh, raiding Jewish industry mm-hmm. and funding the Nazi war effort. <laughs> then they're part of the biggest political bribery scandal uh, in the later half of the 20th century. And then their kids are now still the youngest billionaires in Germany. There's zero accountability <laughs> beginning to end. <laughs> it's great. Apparently, the um, Friedrich Karl Flick gave some sort of interview where he talked about how he sought safe assets and 4% annual return after taxes on his fortune. Because, again, he sells all the money to, um, or all the assets to Deutsche Bank, Mm -hmm. and then he just has this big pile of cash. Mm -hmm. And so from 85 to um, his death in, I think, 2006, yeah, Mm -hmm. 2006, he... uh, you know, just kind of like invest the money. And this is just what we have talked about a lot here is just, you know, if you're getting a 4% return after taxes, well, that fortune is just going to grow. He gets, you know, $2, two billion some from Deutsche Bank, and then he le- is able to leave $7.2 to his kids. What's a little slaves and bribing politicians? <laughs> and even now, uh, the Flick family has a large art collection. Oh, yes. Yeah, so... The main thing with like the Flick family art, connect, art collection was they Jewish groups were protesting uh, Berlin and Munich art galleries mm-hmm. for accepting donations from them because wow. they felt like this is just the fruit of slave labor. Yeah, of course. Which is obviously this correct, but um, Flick didn't. The Flick family never really agreed to any like comprehensive form of reparations. Mm-hmm for the descendants of these the slaves themselves or the descendants hmm. and well, so yeah. like these art transactions are just going through unscrutinized unscrutinized now i don't think those kids should be held responsible for their parents crimes i think that's unjust and <laughs> the kids must be like man thank god there weren't more survivors because that would have been a much bigger <laughs> bill <laughs> but yeah the kids have paid no restitution some of the other german nazi billionaires have paid at least token restitution but friedrich flick up to his death denied any wrongdoing, didn't pay any compensation. None of his kids have either. Actually, I think the after the Bloomberg article came out in 2018, the youngest kids might have paid something, um, but it is just entirely a result. Was it 90% of their net worth or 80% <laughs> of how much they're worth? Somewhat less than that. Come on, fucking... It should, four, eat, it should at least match the death rate. Yeah, exactly. 40,000 people. <laughs> not, but not murdered, not just straight, we killed them. They worked to death. And this fucking kid's like, I'm going to be a good fencer. Fuck you. (laughs) You don't need to sword fight, son. Your family's done enough damage to the world. Probably doesn't even have the scars on his face. I mean, like, and the fact is, is that they're the youngest billionaires. And then what? Their self-made billionaire score is what? Through the roof? Mm -hmm. Get the fuck out of here. Like, listen, first of all, neither of these people eat butt. They're not generous at all. I know that for a fact. And I don't even think that there's twins. I think there's just one. And if he dies, he's going to pretend to be his sister. I think it's one of those situations <laughs> where one's going to just kind of merge into the other slowly and want to double that inheritance, if you know what I mean. Yeah, but their productivity is much higher than anyone who worked in their minds. So you know, <laughs> they were able to eat a full breakfast that morning. Uh, But yeah, I mean, that's basically just kind of the story where, you know, they made some sort of token donation after this Bloomberg article comes out in 2018, because it's entirely like, none of these people give a fuck. Everybody has, everybody rich has this idea in their head that they somehow earned it or deserved it. But if you trace every fortune far enough back, you will find a crime. And in this case, you will find a huge crime, perhaps the greatest crime of the 20th century. And a lot of people who participated in that or whose ancestors... I don't know, I thought Whitewater was pretty bad. (laughs) 
a lot of people whose ancestors participated in that are still fucking cashing the checks that came from it, from mass murder and slavery. And it is just something where, you know, everybody who critiques uh, any leftist policy prescription talks about, you know, the innovation and all the hard work and bootstraps and all this bullshit. And it's just the reality of capital is if you have enough money, you're just collecting four, six, eight percent a year for doing fucking nothing. And usually the initial pool of capital came from something fucking horrible. And with that, <laughs> this has been Grub Stakers. Uh, I'm Andy Palmer. I'm Yogi Polywell. I'm Steve Jeffries. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. Mädchen tragen kurze Röcke, das ist schön für alte Säcke. Die können dann ein bisschen träumen. Doch immer wenn der Sommer kommt, beschäftigt mich seit Jahren schon ein eher philosophisches Problem. Die Frage ist zu schwer für mich, ich stelle sie jetzt öffentlich. Doch Vorsicht, sie ist ziemlich unbequem. Scheint die Sonne auch für Nazis, ich könnte nicht verstehen. Dürfen Faschos auch verreisen, das wäre ungerecht. Können Rassisten etwa auch den blauen Himmel sehen? Scheint die Sonne auch für Nazis, wenn's nach mir geht, tut sie's nicht. Ich will den Sommer nur für